Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. The U.S. is rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. What next steps need to be taken to mitigate the damage from the climate crisis? Doug Becker explores. Welcome to Scholar Circle. I'm Doug Becker. One of the first actions President Joe Biden took on the first day of his presidency was to return the United States to the Paris Climate Accords. On today's show, we explore what the U.S. return to the agreement means for the agreement itself, and we discuss what actions the U.S. should take to have the greatest immediate impact to address the climate crisis. And we examine what the next steps nations should take following these accords to strengthen global action to address global warming. Our guests today are Pamela Chasen, professor of political science at Manhattan College. She's the author of several books, including Global Environmental Politics, whose eighth edition came out last month. Larry Schweiger, who's the former president of the National Wildlife Federation. And Sharon Gibson, Associate Professor of International Relations and Environmental Studies at the University of Southern California. She's the author of Environmental Proxies, Climate Activism, and the UNFCCC, a participatory action research approach. So first, I'd like to ask Pam Chainsick, what exactly happened on Wednesday? What exactly does it mean to say the U.S. has returned to the Paris Climate Accords? Well, as people may remember that when the Paris Climate Accords were adopted in December 2015, it was adopted in such a way that it would not have to require the Senate to ratify the agreement. They did a little legal twister to ensure that this was just considered to be part and parcel of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change to which the United States was already a party. So in this regard, the Obama administration was able to immediately join it. However, because the fact that it didn't have to be ratified by the Senate, it also gave Donald Trump the ability to leave it without anything else, just to say, announce we're leaving this, now, mind you, people can, countries can leave, come and go from treaties at any time. The Paris Climate Accords, however, were written in such a way that you could announce that you're going to leave it, but you could not take leave of it for four years. The original idea was to make this, in a sense, Trump-proof um, that if Hillary Clinton was not, or a Democrat was not elected as the next president of the United States, that... Um, it would have to wait till four years after it entered into force. Nobody could have guessed that it entered into force right before the U.S. presidential election in 2016, which negated that four-year period because it left it within Donald Trump's purview. So because Donald Trump was so easily able to leave it, um, all it took was an executive order from, from President Biden to be able to rejoin it. And all he had to do was submit his intention to the United Nations to be reinscribed. And that'll take place um, in, a, in a number of days as set in the language of the treaty. And so my understanding of what, when a state has signed as a part of the Paris Climate Accords, they set their own national action plan in addressing the climate crisis. Larry Schweiger, what should be a part of of President Biden's action plan as the U.S. returns? Well, I'll start by saying that 
you know, we're, the current commitments that all the countries have made uh, fall way short of what we need. Uh, you know, the scientists suggested one and a half degrees Celsius. Uh, the the, the uh, official position was two degrees when actually we're getting, we're going to get to three degrees if everybody does what they promised that they would do, which is doubtful. But uh, so we all have to step it up. And the good news is that since I started and Pam started on this work many years ago, the price of clean energy has fallen very dramatically. So we're now in a situation where we can uh, move to a clean energy uh, future without having incurred the large cost that we would have had we done this 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and for that reason, I think uh, President uh, Biden and uh, the, the Congress ought to be looking at a straightforward uh, mandate that reduces carbon emissions uh, on a schedule that meets the goals of the uh, of the uh, science, and um, and I think it's possible to to actually accomplish that today. Uh, I don't think it's possible to do a green new deal or any of these other uh, strategies that basically create uh, um, revenue shifting to uh, basically level the playing field among uh, the, the American public. I don't think that would pass the Senate. We have a very split situation in the Senate, but I do think we can gather enough Republicans now who are being pressured by industry to move on a climate bill. It's really interesting. The industry itself is now aware of the urgency and they're moving faster than policy. And a number of them are, are clamoring for uh, a climate policy. And I think the Republicans uh, will have to, some of them will have to step up and do the right thing. So I'm optimistic right now that we may be able to move a bill in Congress uh, this uh, this this session and uh, that we by doing that can re remind uh, the rest of the nations that we all need to step up and that that America's in for real this time. And Shannon Gibson, there's been quite a bit of conversation concerning the climate crisis and the need for climate action that not all communities are affected equally and there are particularly vulnerable communities that may be even more at risk. This environmental justice movement. First, could you describe for us exactly sort of what are some of the main principles of environmental justice and and how the environmental justice movement views the need for uh, for, for climate action? Yes, so it's it's been well documented that the countries that have done the least to cause the climate, climate crisis are those that are the first and worst affected, right? And so that's looking at the countries of the global south, our developing countries, our low-lying island states, least developed countries. But even within developed countries, we see that those that bear the burden are typically those that live in um, ecologically vulnerable spots in the United States, because that's generally where land uh, may be cheaper in some cases. Um, communities of color, indigenous peoples, women, those on the lower socioeconomic um, sort of ladder are the ones, you know, that when we have heat waves that are walking to work, that don't have the ability to turn on air conditioning, um, that are more like with indigenous peoples that are more ecologically dependent because they live a subsistence life. So when you take some of those considerations within the environmental justice movement, um, while the rest of the world is rejoicing that President Biden has signed to rejoin the Paris Agreement, this group is a little bit more hesitant. Um, in, in a sense, they say, you know, this is a first step, but that was easy. As, as Pam was talking about, you know, he signed a piece of paper. It's what comes next that is the hard part. And even looking at yesterday, which was the 21st, 
um, John Kerry, who is now our lead of the climate envoy, gave an address to the G20 business leaders. And he kept saying over and over, you know, we need to ramp up our ambition that this, we're all in this together. This is a global initiative, no country left behind. And he acknowledged the last four years of US inaction, but what he didn't acknowledge was the last 150 years of historical responsibility that the United States bears. And so environmental justice and climate justice groups will be going to COP26 to tell the US that they need to ramp up their ambition beyond the Obama administration um, to take on their fair share, right? To acknowledge their historical responsibility and really, you know, lead the way and to not keep pointing at, you know, China and India and other emerging economies, um, but really to kind of shoulder their burden in this. Shannon referenced the COP26 meetings, the upcoming meetings to address these questions of you know, the need for climate action. Pam Chase, I guess one of my first reactions to this, you said because Barack Obama was able to join the climate accords via executive action and Donald Trump was able to withdraw it, that it creates this perception that when the U.S. signs agreements, it really depends on which party is in, is in power. And so it definitely undermines the sense of U.S. commitment to those agreements. What should the U.S. do to demonstrate a greater commitment you know, to these agreements? Is there any way the U.S. can sort of make up for this loss of reputation that the withdrawal from, uh, from Paris uh, caused? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is take care of it at home. If, we're to pa- if we pass legislation that'll reduce our greenhouse gas emissions through moving to more renewable sources of energy is a really good first step and to find other ways that we can reduce our emissions because one of the best ways to show our leadership is to do it, is you know not just to talk about it, but to show action. And if we get it through Congress, which is a big challenge, it's a very you know, divided Congress, but I think um, as Larry mentioned, we can find a win-win situation here and to be able to demonstrate what we are able to do legislatively will put us back in a position of leadership internationally. Um, if we can't do anything at home and if it's just executive orders, then we're not a leader. Um, it's, it's helpful that we've got that the Biden administration has put together a really top-notch team to deal with climate change and have recognized that it's not just for a single office of a climate envoy like John Kerry to do, but it has to be throughout the administration. And so Janet Yellen at Treasury, knowing her that she is also um, good on this issue, people, you know, EPA, Interior, all of the different offices are going to have to be part of this. Um, And some of the things that can be done without legislation can be done at the federal level in terms of which had been done before, but in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in federal buildings, um, in the federal federal auto fleet, um, how travel is done, um, et cetera. But to be able to get it across the country, we really need domestic legislation. And that will then, I think, demonstrate leadership much more than just showing up in meetings. We've always been at the meetings. You know, it's not to say we haven't been there and we have sat in as observers in all the Paris Agreement discussions. Actually, we didn't withdraw from Paris until quite recently. So we were there. We've been part of the table, but everyone knows in the um, in in the United Nations and in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, that the United States 
has trouble getting things through um, Congress because of climate denialism um, among, you know, I'm going to point out, particularly among the Republican Party. And so um, for us to regain any hope of leadership, we've got to act first at home. You are listening to Scholar Circle. We're discussing the implications of the U.S. return to the Paris Climate Accords and the need for greater climate action with Pamela Chasek of Manhattan College, Larry Schweiger of the National Wildlife Federation, and Shannon Gibson of the University of Southern California. Now, Larry Schweiger, you were describing the need for action. If I you know, hear this correctly, in the past, there's been this tendency to offer financial incentives or means by which, you know, economic incentives for American business to be able, you know, to take steps to try to address the climate crisis. And, but you were saying that perhaps the days of that, that that might be too soft of a, uh, of a, of a position that we really, the United States really needs to mandate rather than just, you know, create financial incentives. Uh, first of all, am I hearing your comments correctly? And do, do you see a real opposition to that? Uh, if the targets become much harder as opposed to being you know, financial incentives? Well, one of the challenges we've faced in the past is that the cap and trade and cap and tax, all these different strategies have been attacked, uh, in some cases call, calling them socialism, and, and that seems to be a common theme uh, lately. Uh, the interesting thing is because the cost of energy has changed so dramatically, coal has gone up in cost, uh, natural gas with fracking has uh, uh, has flattened out, but uh, is no uh, nowhere able to be competitive with uh, wind and solar. And solar with batteries now are falling below the the cost of uh, these other sources. So it makes sense to uh, you know start a, a mandated program to ratchet down uh, the uh, carbon based energy sources and and allow the uh, clean energy to to grow. Now, I believe strongly that we ought to be offering money uh, through loans to small businesses, to churches, to synagogues, to uh, schools, uh, and to private uh, homeowners to, to accelerate their investment in clean energy. But uh, clearly, uh, we, we can do this, uh, and, and we should also find ways to offset those who are uh, in, in an economic situation that they need some help uh, otherwise. So I, I think the, the less complicated we make a law, the more direct we make it, the simpler it is. I, I was involved in the Clean Air Act in 1970 and the Clean Water Act in 72. And we, we did not uh, throw a bunch of federal money at those, although we did on clean water with sewage treatment. But on the other discharges, we did not uh, put up a bunch of money. We simply said, this is pollution. You need to stop it, get your act together and pay for it. And companies, uh, by and large, did that. And I think that's the, the pattern that we, we should be thinking about now because the costs have gone down so dramatically. I wouldn't have said that a year ago. I wouldn't have said it two years ago. But now with the, the declining cost of energy, clean energy, uh, we, this is an option and one that uh, avoids uh, some of the rancor that we've seen in the past. So one of the themes here is the U.S. needing to take action itself in order to demonstrate a commitment, but also one of the real key themes is going to be funding, is going to be financing, uh, you know, for this. So Shannon Gibson, particularly from this 
environmental justice perspective. I know there's this component of the Paris Climate Accords, this Green Climate Fund, that's meant to try to make you know, steps of, you know, towards mitigation and adaptation and dealing with climate change, trying to ease some of the financial cost on, you know, for poorer countries. Uh, should that be the focus in trying to address some of these, some of these justice concerns and therefore, you know, helping poor countries around the world be able to implement this? Or should the emphasis really be on, um, on taking action here in the United States because the U.S., as we know, is one of the you know, greatest, uh, one of the uh, most significant you know, carbon emitters. Well, I would say I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but that finance is for sure one of the package of issues that the climate justice movement is really going to be honing in on at the COP26 talks in Glasgow. Um, first, we need to recognize that as a result of COVID-19, well, it's before COVID-19, Developing countries already had diminished uh, diminished administrative and scientific capacity to deal a lot with climate mitigation and adaptation. So this idea of capacity building, technology transfer, fun- transfer funding was already on the table. But COVID-19 has now squeezed those developing economies so much more. So funding from developed countries will certainly be crucial. But it's not just the amount of funding. It's also the type of funding. What we have seen in the past with, say, um, funding promises that were made back at COP15 um, in Copenhagen, when we go back and, and look, look back at the funding that came, a lot of times that funding wasn't new. What a country would do would say, take funding for female literacy programs and then shift it to climate mitigation or funding for HIV and AIDS medication programs and then shift it to climate change. So first, that, that money needs to be new and additional. Second, that money should be coming as you know, bilateral, it should be investment. Um, It shouldn't be interest-based loans. That's another huge concern of developing countries. So it's not just that we need to seriously ramp up the amount of money in the Green green Climate Fund, which is very much lacking, but that the structure of that funding also needs to be equitable. And Pam Chasick, on the future of climate action, the COP26 meetings uh, are going to be held in Glasgow later this year. Are there new issues that are being proposed to be, you know, put on this, you know, put on the agenda to try to strengthen climate action, or is the emphasis going to be on trying to achieve already agreed upon campaigns? Well, one of the things by the end of 2020, um, all parties to the Paris Accord were supposed to submit what are called their nationally determined contributions, which means under the Paris Climate Agreement, it is a bottom-up agreement. Countries can determine themselves how much they're going to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and how they're going to do it. So they set their own targets. Um, What's legally binding there is that they have to report on it. Um, And there has to be transparency and reporting and how this is done. So according to the agreement, by the end of 2020, everyone was supposed to submit updated and enhanced NDCs, as they're called. And Um, recognizing, as Larry had said earlier, that the existing NDCs are not nearly enough to keep um, temperature increase to below 1.5 degrees Celsius or even the higher target of 2.0. So the first, what's, you know, the idea originally, the, um, the COP in Glasgow was supposed to be in 2020. Needless to say, everything in 2020 was postponed. And so hopefully if it can take place, at the end of 2021, um, which is still in question, um, they need to review all of, 
you know, the updated NDCs, they need to call for them to be strengthened because they're not going to be enough and figure, you know, there's going to be continued calls for climate finance, as Shannon just pointed out, um, particularly because the pledges to the Green Climate Fund did not reach um, the targets um, to be able to help developing countries, both with adaptation and mitigation. And then finally, one of the issues in what's called the Paris Rulebook that still hasn't been agreed to is how to deal with market mechanisms. And um, they were supposed to reach agreement on that um, in 2019, and they couldn't. They had hoped to in 2020. Um, we didn't meet. So that's still on the table for 2021 of how countries can use you know, different forms of mechanisms um, to market mechanisms to meet their NDCs. So as of right now, now this all could change. Um, and one of the other things that, you know, I've been hearing people talking about is we have seen reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in 2020 because of COVID. Um, however, um, as soon as travel resumes, we're gonna see those emission reductions disappear. So how can we maintain our emissions reductions and how can we change what business as usual was pre-COVID? So we keep talking about going back to normal, but we need to define what that new normal is in a more environmentally friendly way. You're listening to Scholar Circle. We're discussing the implications of the U.S. return to the Paris Climate Accords and the need for greater climate action with Pamela Chasek of Manhattan College, Larry Schweiger of the National Wildlife Federation, and Shannon Gibson of the University of Southern California. Kind of an important point for me is that since 2020 and the COVID pandemic, we've seen some real reductions in some areas for carbon emissions. So this argument that whatever action we're going to take isn't going to have any sort of an impact has been has been disproven kind of involuntarily because we're not able to travel, but they've demonstrated some of that. But this call to return to some degree of normalcy, Larry Schweiger, certainly, I know you're optimistic about uh, about congressional action. I can't help but think the Democrats currently have a 50-50 majority, and one of those is Joe Manchin, who is pretty closely tied to the, to the coal industry in West Virginia. What kind of legislation do you expect with the current Congress? If, if you were advising President Biden, perhaps you, know, you have been, um, what would you recommend be at the top of the list, something that you think we could get in the next, say, three months or so, the first 100 days? That's a great point. One of the things that we haven't talked about is that transportation is our number one source of carbon pollution now. And, and of all people on this planet, Joe Biden understands the need to rebuild and to take our rail infrastructure to a very new place. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg is, uh, is, has been moving through the, uh, the confirmation process with, uh, with, with incredible speed because he's the person that's going to have the money bags. And, and he also did a great job on his interview. But it's really important that we change our method of transportation. And the good news in that area is that clean energy cars, electric cars are just kicking uh, butt, so to speak, on uh, transportation. And I think you're going to see a dramatic shift. All the auto manufacturers are, are moving as fast as they can now to try to catch up with Tesla. 
I've been driving a Tesla for several years now and, and love it. Uh, it's a, a, no, a no maintenance car, basically. You got electric uh, motors and uh, electric uh, a battery system and, and, a, and a computer, and that's about it. So you know, we're seeing a tremendous uh, uh, change in the auto industry itself. But I also think we need to build a high-speed rail system, and I think we need to modernize our entire transportation system. And that will be a very positive thing for everybody involved. Uh, even the Republicans uh, yesterday were sending signals that they wanted uh, Pete to come visit them because they know that there's going to be a lot of uh, effort put into finally into an infrastructure bill that will focus largely on transportation. So I, I, I'm optimistic about that side of the equation as well as the stationary sources. Now, Shannon Gibson, I know during the campaign, there was this perception that Joe Biden, you know, his uh, history has been as a pretty moderate Democrat, certainly was not the choice of progressives within the party, but he seems to be signaling that climate action is an issue that he's willing to reach out quite a bit to progressives. As somebody who I feel comfortable saying identifies with the progressive wing at this point, what would you like to see him commit to in these first hundred days that really demonstrate that this is not just, you know, promises and rhetoric, but there's actually some real action? Well, yeah, I think we've seen an interesting sort of evolution of environmental policy asks from the progressive side, from the Green New Deal now to the Thrive Agenda. And it is true, um, as both of my colleagues have mentioned here, that it's going to be tough because we don't have an overwhelming congressional majority to pass some of these very progressive um, stances. I think that what could be useful, though, for President Biden in the first 100 days would be to couple some of these climate action aims with COVID recovery. So that if we make just transition, building back the economy, but we do so in a green manner, so not just bringing back oil and coal jobs, but bringing back green technology jobs, right? That serves both those who are concerned about the economy and these climate justice concerns as well. And then obviously there will need to be some targeting of those communities who've been the hardest hit by COVID. Um, and so to look at these crises, you know, the climate crisis is not just carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. The climate crisis is a jobs crisis. It's a political crisis. It is an energy crisis. You know, all these things build upon and layer upon one another. And so I think that maybe if he can bundle them together to say, like, as a part of pulling ourselves out of the COVID economic crisis in a green manner, that that could help maybe bridge the aisle a little bit. Yes, Pam Chasing, you want to respond as well? Yeah, I just wanted to add something. A lot of this comes in terms of how this is framed. And by framing for the American public, framing for Congress. You know, and what Shannon said makes really good sense is that if you were to put in as part of COVID recovery in terms of jobs, um, you know, helping people survive economically um, is includes job, job training for green energy jobs, includes um, jobs that come through infrastructure development. Um, looking at all of that. And if you frame it that way, because in some circles, climate change is still essential, you know, is a bad word. And as soon as you use climate change or global warming, you're going to see all of this negativity. I mean, Ted Cruz tweeted immediately after Joe Biden signed 
that we are going back into the Paris Agreement saying, well, why do we need to listen to what people in Paris are saying? We need to listen to what people in Pittsburgh are saying. Um, and I saw another retweet, someone tweeted it saying, well, I guess the Geneva Accords mean we're only listening to pe what people in Geneva had to say. And so, um, so, you know, but as soon as you say climate change, you're going to start getting this, you know, anti-climate, you know, you know, not just in Twitter, but also on the floor um, in Capitol Hill. So by pairing it with COVID, by pairing it with infrastructure, with pairing it with all of these other issues and getting it through that way will have the same effect and possibly avoid some of the political rancor. And uh, Larry Schweiger, I'll give you the, the last word on this. I know you've got a lot of experience at, at, at framing these issues. Do you have anything additionally that you'd like to add about how we might be able to frame this issue to have a bit more legislative success? That's a really good point. You know, I, I was in a conversation with Biden uh, back several years ago, and he was reflecting on his own state of Delaware. We saw the other day how much he loves his home state. 40% of the state of Delaware is going to be underwater if we fail to act. And, uh, you know, we, we have so much at stake. The cost of inaction is so much greater than the cost of action today, particularly with the, the drop in, in, in energy costs for, for clean energy. So I, I really think we need to be framing this in an economic frame and talking about it uh, as uh, a least cost approach to uh, our future. And the, the countries that lead the way are going to do the best. Uh, the Europeans are, are massively moving in the direction of clean energy cars. Over 200,000 cars uh, sold in a single month in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, we, need to, we need to stay with them and catch up and uh, move uh, in the right direction. So I, I think Biden gets us. I know he does. Uh, and he's going to push uh, in every way he can. He's got an excellent team, an outstanding team, uh, and, and a team that really knows how to get things done. So I'm optimistic. I don't know exactly what they're going to frame up uh, for, cli for climate legislation, but I know having the years of experience that Biden has in the Senate, he knows what he can get done and what he can't get done. So I think he'll, he'll do the very best he can, and we'll see, uh, we'll see some good change, I believe, in the next four years. Well, thank you very much. We've been discussing the U.S. decision to return to the Paris Climate Accords, what the needs for future action on future climate action, and what some of the demands of the environmental justice movement to try to address the issues of communities that are more marginalized and more at risk than climate change uh, as a way to move forward in dealing uh, with the climate crisis. Our guests have been Pamela Chasek, professor of political science at Manhattan College and the author of the newest eighth edition of Global Environmental Politics, which came out last month. Larry Schweiger, the former president of the National Wildlife Federation, and Shannon Gibson, associate professor of international relations and environmental studies at the University of Southern California. Thank you all very much. Thank you.